It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Friday morning, the 27th of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. This week, the Mental Health Commission told us how child, adult and mental health services are failing so many children. This week also saw Richard explain to us what that means and how Cam's failed his 16-year-old daughter, a young girl, going through a very serious crisis. They were recommending uh, residential treatment, which which they haven't done before. Hearing that your daughter needs to be admitted to hospital for psychiatric care cannot be easy for any parent to have to be told. That means referring her to a residential unit, which would be probably Lindara in Dublin. And that's that's a unit that has 24 beds. Hard as that is to hear. Richard's real problem turned out to be that despite his daughter's crisis, despite her being referred to residential care, there are no beds available to provide crisis care. The thing is, they're not available on an emergency basis. So, you know, child can't be referred into that bed uh, if, if, if they need it urgently. They have, you have to wait until one of those beds becomes available. There is no doubt the services offered to Richard's daughter are not either safe or appropriate. It is of huge importance to me that parents are reassured that the services their children receive are safe and appropriate. That's the Minister with Responsibility for Mental Health, Mary Butler. Minister, you said earlier that it was important to you that parents um, are reassured that their children get the care and support that they need. So I want to start by retelling A nightmare story is the only way you could describe it, endured by a family over the past 11 days. And it's one of hundreds of stories that happen every day under your, both yourself and your government's watch. It's a story about a constituent of mine, a dad and a 16-year-old child. And it started on Monday, the 16th of January, when the parent received a call from the school to say that their child had attempted suicide by overdose. She was taken by ambulance to the A&E in Our Lady of Lords Hospital where she was admitted for treatment and given an antidote medication. That's the fourth time that this child has been admitted 
to hospital for same. Richard's daughter was in the Lourdes to begin with, then went to CAMS, referred for residential care from there and then told to go home because there are no beds available. Richard brought her to Tala and camped down there saying he would not leave until someone helped him keep his 16-year-old daughter alive. When I spoke to Richard yesterday, there was some better news. I'm happy to say that they, they have improved. Um, after a, a, a meeting with uh, a CAMS team from uh, St. Joseph's Unit, who are based in St. Vincent's Hospital in Fairview, Yesterday afternoon, um, they agreed to uh, her, her placement in the unit. So Richard's daughter is now in a bed, a patient in a psychiatric unit in Fairview. That only happened because of the staying power and strength of our dad and the remarkable stance he took. It only happened because he went public with a plea for help. And the Michael Reed show on LMFM highlighted their plate plight over consecutive days with the dad telling shocked and appalled listeners what their family had to endure. Sinn Féin's Imelda Munster speaking in the doll last night. Now Richard fought harder than any of us should ever have to fight to keep a child alive but at least today he knows he moved mountains and he got the care his little girl deserves but Richard doesn't want anyone else to go through what he and his family had to endure this week. Michael, I just, you know, if I can say one thing, you know, there's been some great response to your show from listeners and, um, you know, a lot of people had, had made comments on, on various sites and, and forums and chats and stuff. And if we just ask that, if anyone out there is touched by this story, that use that emotion now and email the Minister for Health, the Minister for Mental Health, the, the, their emails can be found online, email a TD as well, just just CC the them or whatever, you know, all on one email. And, and if, if anyone is touched by this or knows anyone that's affected, please just, just do that today. Do that one thing. Voice your, your, your anger at this situation because I'm not the only one that, you know, is, is, is fighting for their child. There's, there's thousands of parents throughout this country are faced with the same situation, the same crisis that, you know, the, the, the mental health services for, for adolescents and children is just appalling and, and something needs to change and it has to happen soon, you know, but for the sake of our children's lives. Richard, speaking to me yesterday, let's talk now to two local TDs who have been working with Richard to, to bring uh, this individual story to a successful conclusion. Uh, but there are many other stories, of course. Peter Fitzpatrick, Independent TD for Loud and East Mead, is on the line, as is Sinn Féin TD for Loud and East Mead, Melda Munster, who you heard speaking in the doll last night a moment ago. And good morning to both of you. Thank you for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, Melda Munster, this is not a, a gauge of a civilised society, is it? It's anything but. I mean, the failures... It's, it's now at crisis point, um, and those failures are failing families every day of the week. I said last night that, you know, there'll be more families yesterday, today, tomorrow, and the day after, having to go through that same nightmare, having to fight that battle because of government policy. You know, and I asked, when are they going to put the wrongs to right? Because that's their job. But you know, just with speaking with Richard and just the case, and it's one of many, I mean, 
you know, you're dealing with it every week, whether it's um, children in mental health crisis or indeed adults. But, you know, to think if it wasn't for Richard, as I say, and his determination and his strength, and you can imagine even the fear and worry that was going through his head trying to keep his daughter safe, and yet he had to put up that battle. Um, it, it beggars belief, and no parent should have to do that. And, you know, it's a damning indictment of, and a dismal failure of government to provide adequate services. And children are put at, mm. risk, at risk because of that failure, and nobody is ever held to account. Peter Fitzpatrick, as Imelda Munster says, you're dealing with it every week. I think all of the TDs are dealing with it every week. And you've often told us stories very similar to that of Richard's. Uh, like Imelda Munster, you've been working with Richard to try and help get a bed for his daughter. Uh, but you've seen many different occasions where the outcome has not been uh, as good as it was this week. Uh, this particular area has not been surveyed by the Mental Health Commission, but I, I doubt you're expecting anything different or anything better when it does report on this particular health area. Michael, uh, first of all, I want to commend the work that Richard has done over the last number of days in protecting his daughter. It's, it's everybody's nightmare. Like, you know, your, your, your child's not well. You're hoping that the, that the service will look after the child and only for the only for the, the consistency and the concerns that Richard had, and he wanted to protect his family. And I just want to commend the work that he's done the last number of uh, days. Uh, as a member of the regional group, Michael, uh, we, we 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 called the minister in this week and we asked the minister to come in. And the biggest problem at the moment is we, we want to protect our children, and the system is definitely not protecting our, our, our children. The, the, the really thing that annoys me is the government seems to think that if you, if you do a report and you wait maybe twelve months or eighteen months, uh, that maybe the, the situation might go away. But uh, Stephen Donnelly has said yesterday that he's looking for no more reports. Uh, as you know, Mike, the, the, the Sean Massey report was uh, was, was, was published, uh, and uh, the situation was, Michael, nothing has been done. But the thing that really got to me, Michael, was when I when I investigated the whole thing, there was a report done by uh, by an inspector in the mental health services, uh, Dr. Susan Finnerty, and she, she is one of their own, and she turned down and she said, "Listen, cams were disjointed." They're on the resource, they're in demand, they're broken straight to country. And absolutely nothing has been done. And like, uh, like we, asked, we asked Minister Donnelly yesterday, and he gave the typical ministers we pray yesterday. He says that all the measures will be, will, will be done this week, uh, new staff are going to be hailed. Mm. Uh, he, he, he made promises after promises and after promises. And, and he and knows Michael, Richard's story, doesn't he? Oh, well, well Michael, I would be honest with you. I didn't, I didn't speak to uh, Stephen Donnelly about uh, Mitchell's uh, daughter. I spoke to, to Mary Butler. Right. Mm. And she was, fully, she was fully aware. The mental health system was fully aware. And, 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 really and then came into the doll trying to reassure parents that everything was safe and appropriate. Well, I think what actually shocked me there, Michael, was that uh, the minister, both ministers came into the doll yesterday and both ministers made statements yesterday. They said over the last 12 months, 21,000 children have received uh, supports. And they've given them in the last 12 months 225,000 annual appointments. So they are saying at the moment they're doing 4,000 appointments a week with mm. a staff of 770. Michael, maybe I'm wrong or maybe it is. That makes no sense whatsoever. Well, right. Here, here's, another, here's another interesting statistic. Uh, maybe you'd respond to this for Isabelda Munster. There's 67 children uh, waiting over a year in County Louth for a first appointment with a psychiatrist. It's uh, the same uh, in County Meath. Children in Louth altogether, and 
because 397 in Mead and in the CHO area, the 610 with 78 waiting over a year. I mean, those stats speak, speak volumes. You know, that, that's, that's the crisis we're in. And um, Deputy Fitzpatrick said there, but the two ministers last night, I mean, you've said already what mm. Minister Butler said. Minister Donnelly Usher, he was full of empathy uh, with young people and their families um, that may be worried mm. about receiving the care they deserve, right? Yeah. They're the two in charge and they're constantly reactive, not proactive. Like it was my colleague, mm. our spokesperson of mental health, Mark, Mark Ward, that actually insisted that this be put on the doll schedule this week following the publication of that report. The ministers didn't yeah. insist on it. They, I suspect they didn't even want it. And they didn't insist on it, even in light of this damning report. We were all and terribly... They should have been the ones to lay out the plans. We were all terribly upset, uh, appalled actually, uh, listening to a, a local woman talking recently uh, about mm. a really bad toothache uh, and not being able to get a, a dentist. Uh, and I don't mean to undermine her story because we were really appalled. I mean, she just couldn't get to see anybody and eventually had to go and pay herself up in Dublin after a couple of weeks uh, of total torture. Uh, but, uh, I mean, if it's not acceptable to have to wait a couple of weeks to get a, a tooth pulled, how is it acceptable to leave a child without psychiatric care, without even being seen, the first appointment for over a year? Yeah, it, look, it's... It, it's oh, it's incomprehensible, really. Like it's just, but the whole health system is broken. It's fallen apart, and there's, there seems to be nothing done to put it. But the seriousness of this case, and it's it's like so others, so many others. I mean, both adults and children. There's times I'm dealing with a case. I literally, I, I can't get to sleep. I literally can't, and I honestly don't know. And I sit there and I look looking at those ministers reading in their. Own, reading their opening statements last night and I just thought, how did they do it? How did they just come in and read out a statement knowing what needs to be done, knowing that that's their responsibility, that's their their job, and they do nothing? How did they sleep at night? I just, I can't comprehend that because Mm. the cases are so serious right across the board. I mean, there's 72 CAMS, there's supposed to be 72 CAMS beds in the state. There's only 51 open. There's a further closure threatened at Aislinn in Cork that has 16 beds. They could lose all beds or they could lose half. Mm. If they lost all beds, that would leave us with less than 50% of the 72 CAMS beds across the state. And there's ministers there, you know, giving empathy with young people and families Mm. and yet not doing anything. It's what I don't understand is how there is a crisis today uh, and a lot of people are saying, my God, how, how did this ever happen? It's just that it didn't change. It hasn't changed uh, in 20 or 30 years. It's like the emergency department story, but uh, Fianna Fáil uh, campaigned on the back of fixing this going into the 2020 general election. Uh, Peter Fitzpatrick, do you think what we've just heard from Imelda Munster is fair? Because, I mean, I think the ministers were saying there's a lot of good work being done by CAMS and I'm sure that that's true, but uh, is it uh, fair to say that there are failing children at this scale where children's lives are being put at risk? Michael, uh, you look at Michael, like the situation at the moment, Michael, is we are one of the highest, if not the highest in youth, of terms of youth suicide. Now, to me, if that was, if I was minister, that would be, that'd be a warning sign for me. And tr- trying to get access into, in, into, into a hospital, like if children are showing some sign of suicidal 
there's no guarantee that they get into a hospital or even get access to camps. Mm. And, and the problem is, if, if, you, if you go into a hospital and you're suicidal and you've got maybe some type of disability, mm. you're, you're going to be developing elsewhere. And the, the figures are shown there. If you looked at last, the figures, uh, last week, especially last week, 579 children have been waiting for over 12 months for an appointment to CAMS. And CAMS keep turning. That's, a, that's an increase of 168%. And CAMS are saying that uh, oh, they've seen 225,000 appointments last. Mm. Michael, this situation, CAMS, the HSE and everything else. I raised there a few weeks ago, Michael, in the door there. I, I had 15 families to CAMS, Michael. And they're trying to see a psychiatrist. You know what we have no psychiatrists in, in County Laird at the moment is? And the, the situation there at the moment is uh, all of these positions are all being done by, by, by sanction, by the HSE. Mm. Like, they, locally, you can't hire anybody at the moment. And to me, that, that's absolutely a disgrace. Okay. Mm. So, so, so listen, the situation's broken. Uh, the ministers have come into the door there yesterday and they've made promises after promises now. And they keep saying that mm. that is not a money situation at the moment. We should be going around, get, even going to other countries and get people in to fill these jobs at the moment. If money is not a problem, we need to get the proper people in. Mm. Like Richard, Richard has been lucky this week, and Michael yeah. and, and a lot of people have helped Richard. But a lot of people that have not been as lucky as Richard, mm. and a lot of people have, have put their, their children in six foot under the ground, yeah. and that to me is totally and utterly wrong. Totally and utterly wrong. And when I first spoke to Richard on Monday, uh, just for the sake of our listeners, uh, Richard said, I don't think you're going to be able to do anything to help me, but I want to highlight my daughter's story so that no other child is put through this. Uh, And we heard Richard there a few moments ago uh, appeal to the people listening to us to write to the minister and to write to local TDs and to write to anybody who has any influence in this area and ask for change and ask for beds and ask for care to be provided and not to neglect children and leave them at risk of ending their lives prematurely. Uh, would you support uh, Richard in asking people to write to the ministers etc. Uh, I'd like to ask both of you that. Peter Fitzpatrick first of all. Michael, a hundred percent, Michael. As I said, here, your health is your wealth of life, and if your child is having problems, all you all you want to do is have have the proper procedures there that you can go and talk and and like early intervention is is, is to me is the cure. And Mitchell has a sixteen year old daughter, and hopefully that she'll get the proper helping care and live a normal life. But she, she she's getting the opportunity. But there's many many out there that hasn't been as lucky as, as Richard's daughter to to get these services at the moment is. And I am appealing to the ministers and everything else, please help the youth of this country. As you said here, we're in the top in, in, in Europe for, for youth suicide. We have, we have serious issues there at the moment. Is These people want help, and it's up to us as politicians to put pressure on the government. And I'm sure Melda, myself, and all other people locally and nationally will put serious pressure and keep the, the government accountable to make sure that our young people are looked after. Okay. And Melda? Yeah, look... Um Firstly, I just say that I've no doubt, and I'm not plumbing you, Mike, by saying this, but I've no doubt. I mean, we know the HSE. If the one thing they do is they 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 hate bad publicity or being shown up in public, and I've no doubt that if it wasn't for the publicity that Richard's case received on your show and the reaction of the public, that they were actually shamed into. Forcing a bed, but or sourcing a bed, but it, no parent mm. or no child should go through that. And people should write. You're not plumbing me, by the way. Do you know what? You're, you're upsetting me. <laughs> I mean, I re, I no, re, I, I really, no I really wish that wasn't true. 
I know, I yeah. know, and that's, mm. how, that's how desperate the situation is. Yeah. And people should take time because we don't know the day or the hour that it'll be a member of our own family mm. that'll have to go through the ordeal with Richard. And so many, that's, that's, that's happening today to some families. Yeah. It's it'll happen tomorrow. Mm. It's ongoing. And people need to write to Minister Donnelly. They need to write to, to Minister Mary Butler. And they need to hold them to account. We'll do our job. You know, and keeps flagging it up. But I looked last night, like, and our spokesperson, Mark Ward, was asking them to appoint a national director for mental health within the HSE. He was asking them to ring fence funding. He was saying to set up national standards um, for the monitoring and use of antipsychotic medications for children and young people. And they just didn't look back. Like, I mean, it, it beggars belief. Okay. And they are, that their policies are putting children and adults at risk. That's that's the reality. Okay, well, there 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 are children. Want to put that right? They are our children, uh, and yes, you know yes. we vote for governments. We vote for the policies, yes. uh, and really they are public servants, uh, and they are to ser- serve the public and our children. Uh, so maybe people uh, will. Uh, get in touch with the ministers or their local TDs and they ask them to they should lobby do the ministers. To affect change. Mm-hmm. We, we have to change this and they, they have to listen and it's just, it's a bloody shame on them, I have to okay. say. It's just a shame on them. Thank you both very much indeed for joining us uh, this morning. I, I know Richard uh, was uh, very grateful for the help uh, that he received from both of you as well and the work that went on in the background and thanks for joining us on the programme as I say this morning. That's uh, Mel de Munster Sinn Féin TD for Louth and Eastmeath and Peter Fitzpatrick Independent TD for Louth and Eastmeath. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Richard and his daughter's story really has been remarkable for all the wrong reasons and one uh, that has moved many of us over the course of uh, the week. As you heard Peter Fitzpatrick say a a moment ago, the Minister with Responsibility for Mental Health was aware of Richard's story. Look, it has been a really difficult week. There's no no point saying otherwise. And I think Neve Smith, Deputy Neve Smith, sorry, summed it up when she said, you shouldn't have to fight with the system. And we all see that we have to fight with the system, even though we have really good people who are working within the system. And there was um, a case raised by Deputy Morocco and Deputy Munster. It came to my attention yesterday afternoon by Deputy Peter Fitzpatrick about this young child in the Midlands where there was an awful lot of difficulty. And thankfully, um, by yesterday evening, um, through my own um, staff and offices, um, that that child... um, got an inpatient bed but it was the first I heard of it yesterday afternoon when it came to me but there shouldn't be a case where you have to go to a politician to try and get access to a bed or the necessary supports that are needed. No it shouldn't be the case uh, but it was the case uh, that's the Junior Minister for Health with Responsibility for Mental Health Services Mary Butler and will things change well the Senior Minister Stephen Donnelly the Minister for Health says uh, they're hoping to improve the situation. One or two deputies asked the question is there political will to deal with this. And I just want to make a few points here. The minister, the the government is absolutely committed to ensuring we have the best possible healthcare services, both children's services, adolescent services and adult services. That's why one of the few appointments we have in terms of ministers of state in health has gone to mental health, mental health and older people. Um, Minister Butler has 
looked for and succeeded in, in increasing the mental health budget by 200 million euro in the lifetime of this government. It's gone on from a billion euro to 1.2 billion euro. Do we need to go further? Of course we do. But a 20% increase in just three budgets is very, very significant. And it speaks to Minister Butler's prioritization of this and the government's prioritization uh, of this. And then finally, it was Minister Butler who sought this report. Right. Well, there may have been a significant increase in budgets. Was it enough, though? Uh, If it was enough, uh, perhaps uh, we wouldn't be appealing for help to stop children from dying. Uh, And if the government is as committed as it says it is, perhaps this problem wouldn't have gone on for as long as it's going on. It's a decades-old problem, and it's getting worse. And perhaps the waiting lists wouldn't be as long as we've been hearing they are. Quite rightly, deputies have been focusing on the 4,000 children who are waiting. Now, importantly, um, 1,500 of them are waiting less than 12 weeks. It's the, the ones who are the highest concern, not that they're all of a concern, but are those waiting uh, over 12 months, of whom there are 579, and those waiting between 3 and 12 months, uh, there's about 1,800 of them as well. Minister Butler and I will be focusing uh, intently with the HSE in driving down the number of people who are waiting too long. We have success in other areas. Over the last year and a half, the total number of people waiting for an outpatient appointment who are waiting more than 18 months has dropped by 50%. The numbers waiting more than 12 months have dropped by 40%. These are big, big falls because we've been targeting the long waiters and we'll be doing that uh, here as well. I suppose, though, the Minister would agree that regardless of the percentage drop in the number of people waiting, one child in a crisis is 100% too many. Uh, Mary Butler, uh, the junior minister, was saying that despite the concerns that people have. There's a lot of good that goes on in mental health services. I thought that Kian Corley's words were very, very wise. You know, there's 21,000 children receiving support from CAMS. They'll have appointments again on Monday morning. Their families will be listening. And my job is to build confidence in the system because there's a lot of good work going on, a lot of really good work going on. And that was, that was actually stated in the report that there was a lot of work going on. And just in relation to CAM staff work extremely hard to try and provide a good CAM service. This is in the report. We are aware many young people and their families have received excellent care and treatment. And on page 20, we were pleased to note that in the majority of the sample of the files reviewed, the physical monitoring was completed for children and young people with ADHD on stimulant medication. That was my main concern. Children on stimulant medication, were those physical monitoring going on? Were they being overprescribed? Thank and there was no evidence of that in the report. Make of that what you will. The Health Minister Stephen Donnelly and Mary Butler. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Germany, America, Poland, Finland, Norway, Spain, Portugal, the Netherlands and the UK are all to send tanks to Ukraine. Uh, The Financial Times is reporting today that an American company is set to send fighter jets. Russia has already responded with missiles and drone strikes hitting 11 regions around the country, damaging 35 buildings, killing at least 11 people yesterday. Where is the war in Ukraine? 
going going. Declan Power Security and Defence Analyst is on the line. A very good morning to you, Declan Power, and thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Will this give Ukraine the wherewithal to reclaim its sovereign territory, or has uh, NATO and uh, the West got its finger hovering over that big red button? Good morning, Michael. Um, yeah, I think this the big red button concept uh, it gets over-exaggerated. Um, I think if you look at the pattern of response by the Russians to any uh, increased level of Western assistance, military or otherwise, uh, since this war began, has has been consistent. It's uh, been bellicose, it's been blood-curdling, it involves threats, it involves insults, uh, and then it's business as usual. So I, I, you know, I don't think it's the, the Russians have any serious interest in doing something like that unless their home territory and their very existence was threatened, and and that's not likely to happen in this uh, in this war. It's in nobody's interest to want to threaten Russia. Uh, any yeah. threat that is uh, emanating to Russia is of its own making. All of the objectives that Vladimir Putin set out to achieve when he invaded. His, his neighbour, uh, when he broke every rule in international law last year. Mm. He has succeeded in none of them. In fact, he has actually succeeded in the opposite. He has increased insecurity for Russia. He has bounded uh, the Western world together in a way that it never has been uh, for some time. And he has weakened Russian power projection for at least a generation. So on the other side of the coin, the Ukrainians have shown themselves, when given the necessary support, to be capable of uh, fighting with great vigour and agility and utility to protect their homeland. Um, the, and that's because they're doing, they're doing more with less. They're using mm. NATO doctrine, which uh, gives them a, a more agile uh, military. Okay, so, so we're it's not about might is right here. It's not about the, the numbers. It's mm. about how they use them. Sorry, you were going to say. Okay, based on what you're saying, uh, we're, we're safe for the moment in the context of uh, concerns about a third world war. Uh, but if uh, the West was to supply long range missiles, or indeed long range drones, or indeed fighter jets, and they were to attack Russian territory, uh, does the risk increase? Uh, yes, it would, but I don't think any of those things are likely to happen in the way you've outlined. Uh, they already have supplied uh, a version of long-range missiles. The HIMARS weapon system has uh, gave the Ukrainians great uh, agile advantage. Well, it, it, it pre- prevented them from being uh, uh, being overrun in the earlier stages of the, or the, in the mid-level stages, I should say, of the war. The HIMARS missiles allow you to. Um, launch strategic munitions uh, behind the lines of troops that you're immediately engaged with. So they're not something that are designed for long-range use into mainstream Russian territory, but it did allow the Ukrainians completely disrupt and degrade the Ukrainian uh, uh, armed forces, or sorry, the Russian armed forces' ability to continue their, their invasion. Uh, some months back. And you may remember during the summer, the end of the summer, uh, a lot of Ukrainian gains were, ga- were were based on the use of the HIMARS. It destroyed Russian um, uh, behind-the-lines headquarters, ammunition depots, petrol oil and lubricant depots that would have serviced their, their armoured vehicles. So uh, this is a continuation, really, of, of this kind of thinking. It's about equipping the Ukrainians with uh, the ability to withstand uh, Russian offensives to launch counter-offences themselves. And the whole idea is that the West continues supporting so that the Ukrainians can at best, or sorry, at worst, 
at the least defend themselves and stop the Russians gaining any ground uh, at best be able to push them out of their territory and how, that's really the objective Okay, how might it be viewed by other actors uh, other countries uh, who have stayed out of this thus far uh, potential allies for Russia who has launched this o- offensive unilaterally uh, could it bring Belarus uh, into the war or China or India or others? No, uh, th- this is very much within the conventional battlefield of Ukraine. Uh, the Belarusians, maybe they might get sucked into this. It would be very foolish of them if they did because it would suffer politically and economically. Um, they, ha- they are to an extent involved in the war and that they allow- have allowed their territory to be used. So they're not non-belligerents in this. And uh, they will be seen as a pariah state. I think you know, the Russians uh, overplay their hand and have done when they make these bellicose statements. Uh, the Ukrainians are looking for the, the means to uh, continue in existence. Um, the weapon systems that they're being given don't include fighter jets, although it may come to pass at some point that a mechanism may be found to be able to deliver fighter jets to them that they will be able to use. But the issue with that is you need the personnel, not just that are equipped to fly them, but to coordinate and command and control them as a strategic entity. And that doesn't happen overnight. The idea that you can be sure that NATO planners are focused very much on one thing with this is not to have a a direct NATO-Russian engagement. And uh, and the Russians, to an extent, are aware of this as well. But Putin is very much focused on trying to uh, saber rattle his way through this and to uh, to frighten people into uh, a stasis, which he nearly did to an extent with the Germans. People getting consumed with the image about how German tanks would look on a European mm-hmm. battlefield because of the history of World War II mm-hmm. were sort of missing the point. Uh, whatever legacy, uh, whatever responsibility of legacy the Germans have because of the slaughter in World War II, it's not going to be negated by facilitating the slaughter of Ukrainians in, in, in this particular war. Okay. And so the idea that the Western world would somehow uh, scale down or withdraw its support, and I say the Western world, I include countries like ourselves, who are not on the front lines of military support, but we are giving support nevertheless, that we continue to do that. And the continued political support uh, and the unity within countries, particularly EU countries, is essential to this. Because uh, to go back to your point, other countries that are on the sidelines that might be seen as potential allies of Russia have largely stayed aloof from this. Uh, the likes of India, the likes of China, you know, they, they have stayed aloof because they see the consequences of being directly involved in supporting an aggressor like Russia, the political and economic consequences. And that needs to be maintained. All right. Well, I suppose time will tell if uh, this uh, support will bring the war to an end, uh, but it has some way to run, quite obviously. The Germans saying it'll be the end of March before their tanks arrive. Declan, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Declan Power Security and Defence Analysts. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Some of your comments. Deirdre, thank you for your WhatsApp message. She says something has to happen. Something needs to be done with mental health services. Richard is a great man. Isn't he a great man, uh, Deirdre? You're dead right, uh, the way he looked after his daughter. But she says the buck stops with the Minister for Health. Stephen Donnelly is in charge. He needs to get real and to act. We would another WhatsApp message from Tom, who says when it comes to Donnelly and co., 
Don't be, don't believe a word because words can tell lies. Tom says, Banana Republic. And that's uh, Tom managing uh, to get mentions for Tin Lizzy and the Boomtown Rats in one very quick text message. Well done, Tom. Uh, although I think some of us would dispute that it is a, a Banana Republic. Mary says, Congratulations, Michael, on highlighting the lack of mental health services for young people. It's disgraceful. Can you do anything about the vile hatred that is being posted on a Facebook page about the rev- the asylum seekers in uh, Termin Fecken. Uh, I'm actually afraid for the men who are in the triple house. I'm glad you said that, uh, Mary, uh, because I know there's an awful lot of support uh, for the men since uh, the programmes that we did uh, about them taking refuge in Termin Fecken and indeed after the work last weekend that they did with uh, the um, uh, tidy towns, tidying up 40 bags of rubbish, I think it was. And Termin Fecken is looking wonderful. Lots of people have met the men. They like them. Uh, and uh, I think most people are very happy uh, to have them there under the circumstances. It's not ideal. I don't think anybody would say it's ideal. Uh, but uh, I think that uh, page uh, is uh, most questionable. Most, most questionable. And I think there's questions being asked about some of the things that are being said on that page and indeed some of the people uh, who are posting on that page. Uh, Peter has been in touch uh, because uh, in the early promo for the programme I mentioned that we'll be talking about right-wing fascists and uh, Peter is uh, waiting to hear about right-wing fascists uh, and he, he's wondering, uh, is that all we're going to be talking about? He doesn't uh, like uh, the turn of phrase. Yeah, it's uh, what you call it, uh, the National Front isn't that what you, they, these people call themselves? The National Front, the Nazis, the skinheads, the hundred men who turned up in balaclavas outside Desi Ellis's office? Peter, uh, we're uh, not going to talk about uh, the people that you want us to talk about and the light that you want us to talk about. We don't talk about thugs in a democracy uh, as if uh, they're entitled to a say. God's sake. Um, somebody else uh, saying about Richard's 16-year-old girl, uh, if you think that story is bad, you should talk to foster parents. Uh, don't mean to belittle that story, uh, but uh, there's an awful lot going on. That's Tina. Thanks, Tina. Claire says, good morning, Michael. The HSE should be demolished. What is being done for people in this country? Mental health issues are shameful. There's no dentists for people who have medical cards. Again, shameful. Our children are our future. As I say, talk is cheap. Our lovely country is falling apart and fast. Thank you. Now let's talk about dogs again. You may remember in November the brutal attack on Alejandro Mizan, a nine-year-old boy in Enniscourt. He prompted a huge outcry. Uh, It comes, of course, on uh, the foot of all of uh, the attacks uh, that are now commonplace and regular and expected on sheep across uh, the country and uh, the uh, destruction of uh, so many people's sheep uh, and uh, the upset and cost and everything else that goes with it. And something has to be done. The Taoiseach at the time last November was saying uh, that maybe we should look at these dangerous breeds uh, and talk about banning them all together. Who needs these dogs, he said, uh, if I remember correctly. Anyway, that was last November. Uh, at the time, the Taoiseach of the day was Michal Martin and he, he was talking about setting up a, a, a work... Well, no, actually, he wasn't talking about... He, he said he was going to get the Minister for Agriculture to look at it. That's Charlie McConnellogue. And Charlie McConnellogue then met with Heather Humphreys and together the two ministers said they were going to set up a working group to look at it. Well, lo and behold, we're getting around to it now. And I was really sorry to hear and see what happened to uh, Alejandro, a very brave boy who has suffered um, life-changing injuries. And indeed, we're all aware of the very tragic case of a uh, young baby uh, killed uh, by a dog, which was recently in the coroner's court. 
um, and a number of quite a number of farmers have been devastated at scenes of destruction uh, produced by marauding dogs. Uh, so a working group on dog, dog control has now been established involving the Department of Agriculture and also the Department of Rural and Community Development. Uh, terms of reference are being finalised. Uh, the group will meet on Thursday, the 26th of January. Um, it's going to look at the issues related to dog control, um, make recommendations quickly, uh, and then we can act on them. All right, and we'll be hearing more about that a little bit later on the programme. Uh, that's uh, the Taoiseach, Leo Vradker, speaking in uh, the Dáil yesterday, and that, or it was on Wednesday, actually, that working group uh, meeting for the first time. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yesterday, but let's go back uh, to the issue uh, of immigrants and a uh, new piece of legislation, uh, the Protection of Private Residencies Bill, which would stop these protests taking place uh, outside places where people live. Uh, it's being proposed uh, by Finnefall Senator Malcolm Byrne and now approved by the government. Senator Byrne is on the line. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. I'm sure like a, a lot of people uh, you've uh, been upset at some of uh, the scenes uh, we've seen uh, being carried out uh, by a small number of people at certain locations around the country. Uh, well, good morning, Michael, and good morning to your listeners. Uh, and yes, they, uh, they, they are very unfortunate uh, scenes. The, the piece of legislation that I've introduced, uh, it's not about a you know, ban or anything on protesting. Uh, it's about protecting um, people's homes. It's about protecting people's families. Uh, I would have introduced the legislation originally in late 2021, when you might recall uh, that there were protests outside the homes of some politicians, some journalists, the chief medical officer and other health professionals, and included in particular people who remember there have been protests outside the homes of both ministers, 
uh, Stephen Donnelly and Simon Harris. And regardless of whether you agree with you know, their politics, um, both ministers have young families. They weren't at home uh, at the time. Uh, and so the protest and intimidation outside their family home, who it really impacted on, uh, was um, their young families. So I, I introduced this bill. Um, what it does is it's, it's quite restricted, um, but it will uh, make it an offence uh, to engage in targeted protests uh, outside somebody's home. There are plenty of places that if you want to protest in Ireland and if you're unhappy uh, you know, about government policy or something else, um, you, you can go and do it. The right to democratic, peaceful protest is something that's really important to us. I've taken part in protests in, in my own time. I will always stand up and defend this. But if you want to go uh, and disagree with government policy on the health service or if it's um, with regard to something in justice or even on immigration policy, you can take your protests mm. to the gates of Leinster House, to a government department and agency. A lot of TDs and senators have constituency offices, uh, you know, their local authority offices. There are plenty of places where you can make your point. Um, but I think that, you know, the family home and the right of an individual and their family to privacy uh, and to the sanctity of their home, that deserves to be protected. Indeed. Your bill obviously has been knocking around for some time, just adopted by government, uh, but something that you proposed during COVID, when those protests that you mentioned were taking place. I think it's true to say that the same people uh, who were protesting about COVID are the same people uh, who were protesting about the vaccines and the same people who were making false claims uh, about the vaccines and that they were having a detrimental impact on people and that they were were being made by uh, fetuses, aborted fetuses. uh, uh, They were using them to make the vaccines and that there were aborted fetuses under the GPO. There were the same people who were uh, protesting about G5, uh, QAnon, all these mad conspiracy theories out of the David Icke League, uh, which believes that aliens are, are running the world and that uh, the world's uh, elite are actually uh, lizards uh, in human bodies. Yeah, and, and, and look, the, the, the those who are taking part in some of these unsavory protests, you know, there's a danger of giving them too much oxygen because they, they are only a tiny proportion of the population. Mm. And most of them wouldn't have the courage to put their names on ballot papers and the few that have done it, uh, they, they tend to be roundly defeated. Mm. Um uh, you know, the, the, the overwhelming majority of people, and I know, you know, listening to some of the issues you were just talking about there, and where people get annoyed about, about mm. issues, mm. Um, most most people are responsible. They know how to exercise at that protest. They can either do it at the ballot box, or they'll take part in marches, or they'll contact their local public representative. But they'll do it in a responsible and peaceful way. There are some people who think that it is okay uh, to go to where somebody lives to protest outside, you know, where they live and to try to harass and intimidate Mm. not just the person that they're targeting, but indeed their family. And Mm. I think, uh, you know, speaking to the Guardian on this, um, there there are, you know, potential lacuna in in the legislation. So I brought forward this piece of legislation. You would think that we would need uh, to bring forward this legislation. You would think... You know, the people would have the cop on that you don't protest outside somebody. Uh, you, you wouldn't think these people would have the cop on. No, seriously. <laughs> no, no, I mean, I've been, dealing with, I've been dealing with a lot of these characters for years and there's not much going on there in terms of cop on. Yeah. Well, that, that's unfortunately why, uh, you know, we, we have to bring forward legislation uh, in this area. Mm. 
I, I was very glad when we, we moved it to the next stage uh, yesterday. It had government support. Uh, it was seconded uh, by, by my friend and colleague, um, Senator Shane Castles from, from Navin, who in fact spoke about you know himself taking part in a protest about Navin Hospital only recently, about how mm. you know, that's, that's very important. And I'm sure you know, most of those protesters around Navin Hospital, they would never dream about the idea of going to protest outside yeah. the private home mm. with the Minister for Health. Mm. They know, you know how to protest responsibly. So, uh, and this, by the way, it's not just about politicians. Mm. It's protecting anybody uh, you know, in, in their home. Yeah. Um, this has been a big issue in the Including US, immigrants. Canada for a while. Yeah. Including immigrants. Yeah. And, and, and I have to say, look, if, if you disagree with government's immigration policy yeah. or if you have, uh, you know, questions around our justice policy, yeah. um, take it to the people who are making those decisions. Yeah. So, so uh, and I'm, I'm perfectly happy to have a very open evidence-based debate around, around immigration. Are you a but, traitor? Uh, well, I, I, you're, you're, I, you're accused of being a traitor by these people who you said wouldn't put their name in a ballot uh, sheet. I think some of them have, by the way, uh, but nobody votes for them. Uh, but then they say that we don't live in a, a democracy, which is a complete insult to all of uh, the people in this country who go out and vote and a complete insult to our martyrs who died for this democracy. And we are very lucky, obviously, to live in such a healthy, democratic country when you look at the rest of the world and some of the regimes that are in place. Well, I mean, one of the things that we sort of forget, uh, Michael, is that we're actually the 13th longest continuous democracy in the world. And if you look back 50 years, and 50 years is a relatively short period of time, the majority of countries in Europe were not democracies. And I'm not just talking about Central and Eastern Europe, mm. Spain, Portugal, Greece. So what we have is, is valuable. There, there are real threats that are out there. Mm. I think there is, a, there is a major problem around misinformation and disinformation particularly spread online. Uh, and we've got to look at ways of tackling that, not just through regulation, but through education uh, as well. Um, yeah. we, we need to value our democracy. I, I, I mean, I was very happy yesterday. We had cross-party support on this issue. Uh, and as politicians, uh, while we, we disagree vigorously around a whole range oh, of, course, uh, of yeah. issues, mm, yeah. Uh, you can you can disagree without being disagreeable. Well, uh, and you're, you're we, allowed to disagree. That's what democracy is. It is. Yeah. Um, and but these are angry men who try to ram opinions down your throat, uh, and they've come up with all these off the wall things. And this is the latest one. Uh, and they call you a traitor and claim that they are patriotic, patriotic, st- sticking up for the people of Irish against this rogue government or whatever kind of nonsense they go on. Uh, uh, as I said, I mean, people remember the national front in the UK and some of these groups uh, because of how patriotic pa- patriotic uh, they claim to be uh, and that they're acting in the uh, interest of the nation I would remind you of the National Front they are Nazis uh, to a large degree in terms of the way they're behaving outside of the homes of immigrants telling them to go home and intimidating people like that uh, I mean should we be looking at prescribed organisations when it comes to this? Well, it, 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 it is possibly the case. We've gone down that road before. I, I think we've got to strike a very careful balance. Um, I mean, one of the elements around a democracy uh, is the right to freedom of expression. Um, it's uh, the right to be able uh, to protest, the right you know, to express your point of view. Um, every right, though, by the way, comes with a responsibility. And that's what some of those who you know, start to shout about their rights tend to forget. Uh, that, you know, while you have a right to protest, you also have a responsibility to other people um, within the community. While you have a right to express your opinion, you also have a responsibility not to be defamatory, that your opinion, as you express it, should be evidence-based and should be informed. 
Uh, and I think you know a lot of those who think that they you know that they they represent um, the true voice fail to understand that the nature of a democracy requires a balancing of those rights uh, and uh, and those responsibilities. Mm. I, I I do find it funny you know that that a lot of them start to talk about about you know how family values are in decline. Uh, you know, as a result of some of our policies, and yet they choose to target family homes uh, and intimidate mm. um, the partners, but particularly also children. I mean, I, I would just say this to um, you know to your listeners. Um, in, a, in a lot of cases, like those of us who put our name on, on, on the ballot paper, you know, we we expect that we're going to get a lot of opposition and criticism, uh, and some of it, uh, you know, can can uh, can you know border. Uh, onto uh, on, 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 onto violence, as we've seen. Yeah. But, but, but our families and our friends and those around us don't do it. And, and I just ask, you know, your listeners to think about this. Um, imagine that you were, you know, the partner of Stephen Donnelly or Simon Harris uh, and their young families, uh, and in the case of Simon Harris, his wife had only recently had a baby, they're at home, uh, their, uh, their husbands are, are not at home, they're off doing their work, and you have an angry mob baying outside uh, your door. Or similarly, in terms of the protests that are taking place at the moment mm. uh, ar- around where those who are seeking asylum and mm. refuge are. Um, and regardless of what your views are on immigration policy, you're still talking about, in many cases, uh, children and young people who are often afraid. Some of them have come. Well, you know, wouldn't they be war. afraid? I mean, I'd yeah. be afraid. Yeah. Mas- and, masked and, men outside shouting, go home. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, threatening to burn the building down. Uh, and then yeah. there's the children they bring with them. They're not only intimidating uh, the children inside, uh, they're uh, bringing children up uh, to be hateful, uh, to be yeah. discriminatory, to be horrible people. I mean, it's yeah. just so wrong. And quite often they do it under our national flag. Can yeah. anything be done to protect our national flag? Well, on, 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 I mean, not really. I mean, they, they, they clearly misuse it, but they have no understanding, uh, you know, of, of what it's, it's, it's meant. I mean, one of the, the unusual things I saw, I saw one of these protests uh, where um, the protesters started shouting abuse at, at a, another politician who happens to be of a particular religious uh, persuade of a of a particular religious um, persuasion, and mm. some of the, the you know what they were shouting was sectarian, which is a clear failure to actually understand the meaning of the green, white, and orange, which is about bringing peace between uh, the different religious and political traditions on this island. I I, I think, though, Michael, and, and this is the point that that I think we've we've got to get, get across. As a country, we're better than that. We don't need to lower ourselves uh, to their standards. Um, you know, Michelle Obama, President Obama's wife, um, famously said, when they go low, we go high. We should be really proud uh, of our country as a democracy. You know, what we have achieved over the last century. Yes, it's not perfect as a country, um, but there's a hell of a lot that is good about this country. It's a democratic country. We can, we have that right to go out and to protest peacefully outside our national parliament or uh, without fear of repercussion, that's not available mm. to people in a lot of other countries. Yeah. Think of Russia, China, Iran, Cuba. Mm. Um, we have the right to be able to elect our representatives. Mm. And if you're not happy uh, with our representatives, you know, in another couple of years, you can vote them out or you can change. Yeah. Or you yourself can run for election. And, and I think this is something we should celebrate. And the overwhelming oh, majority mm. of them, I mean, yeah. that mm. these... These are a, a fraction of, uh, you know, the population. They don't contribute. I mean, I, I you know, I know I, I heard you talking about, you know, the work of Tidy Towns Committee. Mm. But you think about 
the people who are working in our, our communities, all of these, they're the real patriots oh, yeah. where we live. Mm. You, you won't see any of these people getting up early on a Saturday morning to help out. I don't you think know, you'd see them getting up early on a Monday morning either, <laughs> unless it's to yeah, go no, to the well, labour exchange. Yeah, I mean, these are the big mouths and the layabouts. Uh, and uh, quite often what we're talking about is rent-a-mob. As I said, they're the same people who are going around with all of these other angry, vile, stupid protests for a, a long time. Uh, and you just hope that their views won't get any traction. But you're saying that you should be prohibited from protesting like this outside somebody's home and you've gone further you're going to your legislation will lock these people up if they're repeat offenders outside politicians homes well well sorry it's not this is not about politicians homes this is around targeted protesting outside in any individual's homes so whether it's it's you michael as a journalist or whether it's a politician or a health official or anybody else, uh, you know, a community a, a worker, you cannot protest outside somebody's home uh, and engage in intimidatory behaviour mm. like that. What the legislation, uh, if it's enacted, uh, what it will provide, and it's now going for dis- discussion of the Justice Committee and the Office for consideration in detail, but what it will do is if you engage in targeted protests outside somebody's family home, mm. uh, what will happen is... If and due process of law is followed, if you're convicted on the first offence, uh, it's a fine. But for second and subsequent offences, mm. it will be an option to the judge to imprison the people. Yeah, I, I personally think, uh, for what it's worth, uh, that somebody should look at a, a constitutional amendment because uh, the flag uh, is uh, protected to some degree under the constitution and it spells out uh, how it should be dealt with. Uh, but I, I really do find it vile to see the way it's defiled by some of uh, these people as a symbol of hate. And if it continues, you'll continue to have people like me saying that it must look uh, as uh, to people, let's say, inside residents' children, uh, the way uh, uh, in uh, the 1930s uh, the the Jews looked at uh, the swastika uh, as a symbol of hate. And it it really is a dreadful thing to think that uh, the tricolour, the Irish national flag, would be looked on by anybody like that. Well, yeah, and it's something of which we should be proud because it is about... Uh, peace and reconciliation uh, as a flag. But but I think more than that, Michael, I think it's around, you know, what do we stand for as a people? And we are far better than, you know, that that, 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 that small group. The, the, the overwhelming majority mm. of people, I mean, I'm sure if you talked, uh, you know, or did a poll even among your listeners, yeah. um, it, I, I would be really surprised if there's more than one or two percent who oh, thought yeah. that it was ever acceptable. Well, I think Chairman Fecken is a, a great no. example. I mean, the people of uh, Chairman Fecken uh, will tell you it's not ideal. And they've had lots of questions. A lot of those questions have been uh, addressed because uh, yeah. they've met the people, they've uh, seen the people uh, work in the community and do uh, some uh, tidy towns work like that. Uh, but there's a small number of people and it's a, a very small questionable number of people who are stirring it up, stoking it up trying to raise fear and suspicion uh, where there's no need for it and where it actually has nothing to do with them yeah. and, and look, I, I can totally understand where you know, people have concerns, particularly if they feel that you know, there aren't sufficient uh, facilities within their community there are accommodation crises and so on they are all very legitimate mm. um, questions and, and that's where it's important you know, the government needs to communicate uh, with communities. Uh, and we know and we have seen the response. I mean, it's been incredible, the response of communities right across Ireland uh, to those who uh, 
who you know ha- are fleeing war and who are are seeking refuge. And and, and I just think about. And, and I know that there are lots of problems, but I just say to your listeners, if you think about somebody in Ukraine who you're literally being told, look, there's a danger um, that your family home is going to be bombed tomorrow, pack your suitcases, your home's not going to be there uh, when you go back. And those those children um, flee that. Like we, we've seen 12 million people having to leave uh, Ukraine. Mm. Now, do, do you really think, and I mean, this is, I suppose, a question I always put out there. Do you really think those people want to leave their home? Um, do you really think that the community in which you you know you grew up and you work and so on, uh, do you really want to leave that? Mm. Um, no, you don't. It's mm. The same way, the yeah. same way as as you know, I, I'm quite certain if you think back in Irish history during particular events, yeah. uh, you know, the famine and all those other events, people didn't want to leave mm. home, but they yeah. they had to. Or do you um, do you think for a second that the bombs that fall in Syria or Yemen are any less destructive for that matter? Yeah, no, it, yeah. It, it, mm. it, it, exactly, mm. and, and that's not minimising very legitimate questions that people have around accommodation and supports uh, and so on. It, it's also by the way you, you might be aware that the government this week announced a fifty million fund mm-hmm. uh, that's being made available to local authorities, including to Louthermead County Council. Uh, to specifically support those communities who have taken uh, significant numbers uh, of uh, refugees and asylum seekers. Uh, So money has been made available to Louth County Council, Meath County Council, for the communities, not for the the direct provision or emergency centres, but for local community groups to look at infrastructure projects and so on, recognising the contribution uh, that's there. And I I just think, look, I I never wanted to bring in legislation Mm. like this but unfortunately, we need to do it. Okay. Peaceful protest is a cornerstone of our democracy. I hope your legislation brings about a, an end uh, to those very distasteful protests uh, that we've seen outside of people's homes. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Fianna Fáil Senator Malcolm Byrne. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie The former British Prime Minister John Major was in front of uh, the Oireachtas Committee on the implementation of uh, the Good Friday Agreement yesterday. Fergus O'Dowd is uh, the chair of uh, that committee and he's on the line. Good morning. Thanks for joining us uh, as always. What did you take from that meeting with Mr Major, Fergus O'Dowd? Well, I thought it was very important that we hear, first of all, the historical evidence to who, what, where and why and also to get his opinion on what needs to happen now and while we focused on his actions as Prime Minister, I think the most important message that I took from him was that the protocol has to be solved. It was badly negotiated. And one of the big problems was, I suppose, that people in the North, regardless of the politics, uh, weren't involved in a negotiation because of between the EU and the mm. British government. And that's why we have this impasse and uh, we need to get to work together again. And the other thing, Michael, was that it's when the Irish and the English government are at Edom and on the same mm. page that we get the best outcomes for, for both north-south and east-west relationships. They're the big things. I thought it was very interesting, uh, in fact, uh, to hear Mr Major as a, a former leader of uh, the Conservative Party, as a, a former Tory Prime Minister, uh, to suggest uh, that the relationship between Ireland and the British Conservative-led government now could improve. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's been pretty bad. In fact, it was never worse under Boris Johnson. And uh, I think that the new prime minister, even though he is distracted with huge issues, 
<coughs> and with a growing unpopularity of his party, uh, is making, I believe, important efforts to improve that relationship. Excuse me, and that's what that's what needs to happen. I think Mr. Major uh, gave full credit to Tony Blair in getting uh, the peace process over the line, if you like. Uh, but he certainly was uh, someone uh, who was very important in the lead up to that, uh, and he seemed uh, to be on a very friendly basis uh, with uh, the Irish Prime Minister at the time, Taoiseach John Bruton. Yes, indeed, and also the former. Uh, former Prime Minister Albert Reynolds and he said that both of them were personal friends of his and he obviously deep regretted the passing of Albert Reynolds and obviously they formed very strong bonds and that's the way it should be because Mm. we've had a very mixed relationship over hundreds of years, very damaging obviously in the past and it's only by building that relationship and particularly now that Britain has left the European Union uh, you know, we really need to to work extremely hard on this, and I think that that's what the new British leadership is doing, and that's certainly what the Irish government is committed to. And we just need to make sure, Susan Michael, <coughs> that our relationships, particularly with the unionists in the north, are improved. And that's why I think that that the Taoiseach's statement that the protocol, you know, hadn't been properly thought through was important uh, to reassure unionists that. We want them to participate fully in 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 the obviously in the executive in the north and in the north north south bodies, mm. and I think if we can square that circle, our country would be in a much better place. And it's not easy, obviously; it's actually very difficult. But that's mm. where our efforts must be. Your committee obviously looks at implementing uh, the Good Friday uh, Agreement, and that is, in fact. A work in progress, isn't it? Uh, a work, a job of work uh, that began in 1998. Uh, but uh, obviously, there's a lot more to be done, and uh, God knows what will happen now. I think Mr. Major uh, was very, very concerned uh, about the idea that uh, the DUP would block the protocol, that Stormont wouldn't be restored, and that we could see a return to violence on this island. Absolutely, and in fact, that was echoed. Uh, that's been echoed to us privately by some people from the Lilas community, who say they're getting extremely worried about you know the drift because there is a vacuum. Uh, there is no government in the north. There's no. There are no ministers. There are no north south bodies. So, you know, the hard voices are beginning to be heard and, and use their influence. We also met separately, Michael. It's not public knowledge, but we also met with Bertie Hearn. Uh, and obviously uh, Mitchell McLaughlin from Sinn Féin, Peter Robinson uh, from the DUP, and many other leaders, political leaders, uh, from Northern Ireland recently as well. And the same message is uh, we've got to reach out to unionism, we've got to listen to their voice, we've got to make sure that the executive is up and running and the North-South bodies, and it's to reassure them on the protocol. At one point, the unionists haven't and don't seem to pick up on it all, is that they have free and unfettered access to the European Union under under the agreement. Uh, but notwithstanding that, we have to we have to find a way to get them to participate fully, knowing and acknowledging that there has been significant change in the north, and that Sinn Fein will be taking up the lead position in any new executive, uh, and that obviously is difficult for some people to stomach and I think that's part of the problem myself. I mean, the, the one good thing if we can find a solution to the protocol is that um, Northern Ireland, uh, you know, has a, a, the huge advantage 
of being part of the UK internal market, um, its relationship with the south of Ireland, which is growing all the time from a business point of view, and being in the single market. I mean, it, 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 it's, 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 a, it's a phenomenal, I, I get tired myself of saying it to people from Northern Ireland, but it's a phenomenal opportunity um, uh, for, for growth and stability and, and investment in, in, in Northern Ireland. And, and it's, a, it's, it's a huge opportunity we can get across this side of the fence. What did you think of Bertie Hearn saying uh, that they're squabbling over breadcrumbs, if you like, or rashers and sausages, as you said. I do really, really believe that this isn't rocket science. I mean, when you think of the things that we've resolved, well, we got the IRA to decommit their arms, but we can't find a way of working out how sausages and rashers will work in the internal market. I mean, it, it, it's beyond it's beyond comprehension, I think, there, there, and there has to be a solution. That, that, that's part of it. I think the problem was, you see, uh, unionism sees it as a diminution of the so-called act of union. When I say the so-called act of union, it was never agreed by the majority of people on the island because Protestants didn't have a vote and they weren't represented in that parliament uh, in 1800. But nevertheless, uh, th- that act has been changed a number of times and they're concerned that the that their belief and their entitlement to be part of and feel part of uh, the United Kingdom is is changed by the protocol because there's a barrier they believe between between free trade between Britain and, and Northern Ireland. But the problem is we have to find a way of protecting obviously the single market as well. So I think there will be practical solutions to that. Uh, but nevertheless, the unionists face a difficulty in that you know in that they are you know they are both in the union they're in both unions they're in the european mm. union and they're in the, the british union uh, but yet there you know there has to be this 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 analysis and this uh, so we have to know exactly what's coming into the north that could possibly be moved into the eu through uh, across the border mm. and that's the problem when was it that the uh, IRA decommissioned? 2004, thereabouts, was it? Yes, I think, yeah. Yeah, uh, thereabouts. I mean, it was so many years after the Good Friday Agreement was signed in 1998, and I suppose that's what I, I was uh, alluding to earlier on about it being yeah. the first of the steps. But, of course, there was a lot of work done before that, uh, a lot of work that was done publicly and a lot of work that was done behind the scenes as well. Uh, John Major uh, spoke to you yesterday about some of the events in 1994 leading up to the Good Friday Agreement and a conversation that he had with Gerry Adams. Surrendering weapons, especially to the British government, looked like a defeat. And that, I think, lay behind a good deal of their intransigence. Uh, Mr Adams said in terms, I quote, we must take the gun out of Irish politics, unquote a sentiment with which I wholly agreed. But he then argued this included the army and the police who did not bomb, murder or kneecap. During this convoluted discussion, some progress was made, but often then undermined. Fergus O'Dowd, what did you make of that? Well, I mean, it's it's a perception and it's a fact, obviously, that he said that, but the point was you still have to have law and order. And uh, I, I, I think that... You had to make sure that there had to be continuity of, uh, you know, of society, 
And obviously a new police force has come out of that one that is acceptable to the majority in the north. The guns are gone off the streets mm. from both the British Army and, and the IRA. Uh, and, and that's the reality. Uh, and clearly it was a very difficult process for everybody involved. And mm. clearly as uh, there were hard men on all sides, but there were particularly, yeah. I think, uh, John Major, he spoke about, somebody spoke about Tory backbenchers and he mentioned the Republican mm. backbenchers being a top But, but he, he was in effect saying that the IRA campaign was an illegitimate war, that they were terrorists and yeah. at the same time and on the other hand, if you like, giving the impression uh, that uh, they were fighting uh, a sovereign country uh, who was defending itself legitimately and you could be forgiven for thinking that he was saying that there was no wrong on the side of the British. Well, I, I think he actually said that, uh, but that wouldn't be what the, the people, uh, certainly in the north and the people in Ireland feel. Of course, there has been 800 years of British presence, uh, most of it unwelcome. And uh, so that, that is a fact. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the judgment he gave, and I think this is a judgment of history as well, that he had to take the gun out of politics. And that's exactly what happened. The problem now is that the gun is gone, but the executive and the bodies are not are not there at the moment, and that's the weakness, and that's the that's the problem with our present system is that it moves to the extremes. And you saw that the Democratic Unionist Party were looking to their extreme right with you know the TUB and so on. Uh, so 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 there are there are serious problems potentially. We've been to Belfast a number of times, and we find that people on the ground in 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 both communities, particularly working class areas. You know, there's increasing, you know, concerns and worries, you know, about the Good Friday Agreement continuing to work in the absence of of an executive. So it's it's a very serious situation. Uh, it's not one that makes the headlines every day. But if if trouble were to reoccur, which nobody wants, we don't want to go back into, you know, the 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 pre the pre Good Friday Agreement situation. So I think the reality is we've got to make it work. We've got to reach out to unionism. We've got to give them a way out of the place that they're in. And we've got to get the executive up and running and appropriate and proper north-south bodies. Because the other point, Michael, is that IBEC published a survey uh, last week in relation to the economic uh, benefit the Good Friday Agreement has made north and south. And uh, they compare just economically and not politically uh, the economies in the north and the south of our country here and also in, I think, some like 18 places in Britain outside of London, uh, apart from London, sorry, the greatest economic benefit has been on this island to people and that the, the least the least, uh, the least well-off people on this island are 65% better off as a result of the Good Friday Agreement. And by managing our economic, and this wasn't a political mm. uh, document, by managing our economy, We've done extremely well, and the opportunities now uh, with increased north-south trade and with, obviously, the access that Northern Ireland people have, manufacturers and traders and so on, with free and unfettered access into both the United Kingdom Mm. and into Europe is a huge bonus for them. 
and we must build on that. And that's yeah. the future. Well, I think the most wonderful thing of all is uh, that uh, there's few people under the age of 30 in this country who have any real memory of uh, the Troubles. Uh, and uh, we hope that that continues to be the case and uh, that that age <laughs> grows over time and that it'll be forgotten uh, as something relegated to history. Fergus O'Dowd, thank you indeed for joining us thank this you, morning. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Wasn't it difficult uh, to stomach uh, the delight uh, the Israeli Security Secretary was uh, taking at what he described uh, the success of an Israeli military mission and special forces in the occupied West Bank yesterday. It really was appalling. Uh, The commandos killed nine Palestinian civilians, including a 60-year-old woman. A tenth person died later and many were injured. Let's speak to Betty Purcell, who's a former RTE producer and spokesperson for the Ireland-Palestine Solidarity Campaign. Good morning, Betty, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. That really was a a dreadful attack, the deadliest attack on Janine since 2002, the highest death toll, according to United Nations records since they began in 2005. That's right. I mean, you have to remember, you know, people living in Janine camp, their people who were originally, uh, their families thrown out of their homes, evicted from their homes back in 1948 and made to run and flee to refugee camps, both in the West Bank and further afield. Um, So they live in these enclaves and... The um, the IDF, that's the Israeli Defence Forces, so-called, have complete run there. And they just come in and terrorise people. What happened at uh, 7 o'clock yesterday morning was that t- 10 armoured tanks came in, armoured trucks, and um, started shooting. And... Um, they they killed, as you said, nine people immediately and uh, and ten altogether, and there are twenty further seriously injured. They shot tear gas into the children's hospital, and the footage of that on Al Jazeera is absolutely shocking. Of mothers running with toddlers, uh, sick toddlers mm. um, who had been tear gassed, but also when you think of. The elderly woman, as you say, 60 years of age, two teenagers aged 16 and 17, just shot and mowed over by armoured truck. Mm. I mean, it really is shocking to think of how people can live like this. Uh, Attacking a a paediatric hospital with tear gas like that has to be a terrorist uh, attack uh, and indeed uh, possibly a second terrorist uh, uh, um, attack in that they prevented ambulances from getting to the wounded. Absolutely. A really important point. Uh, and including the young 17-year-old who, who was lying there and uh, ambulance tried to get to him. And the director of the hospital said that he was absolutely devastated by the fact that they couldn't get access to, to injured patients. Right. What does this mean for the region? 
Well, what it means is that there has been just uh, an onslaught and, of course, the new mm. right-wing government, extreme right-wing government in, in Israel um, is uh, planning to extend settlements in, in the West Bank. They're demolishing homes on a daily basis. Uh, they're shooting shooting people mm. constantly. Um, this year already, it's been an extremely bloody start with uh, 30 Palestinians uh, killed already in the month of January, including five children. Um, and uh, they seem to think that despite the extreme nature of their government, that Mm. they can get away with this with impunity in the international community. And uh, Perhaps they're they're right, but can they get away with it with the Palestinians, uh, I think is the first question. Is it not? uh, I mean, the response has been one of total anger uh, and protest and very strong protests. Uh, Is peace in the balance? Well, well, it is... um, to this extent, a general strike has been called, um, and there, there is a three-day period of mourning. But you've got to remember that the Palestinian people are so um, cut off from any possibility of making an impact. Um, the only impact that they can make is with international support, and that would be the uh, boycott movement, which has been hugely successful. But it's really important that... Um, that we play our part in that, but within um, the the occupied territories, there you know there are constant battles going on in terms of stop trying to stop demolitions, um, mass protests, you know children throwing stones at tanks. Um, they're just kind of it, it's sad actually to see what civil protest looks like. Uh, in in the in the occupied territories, and then what happens is teenagers being constantly just um, shot dead. So what we need is we need an international response. Most of all, the the uh, neighbouring Arab countries need to need to get involved and um, to become uh, their populations because their governments are absolutely useless their populations to demand action okay. on, on the Palestinian crisis. All right. The United Nations, which has been dormant and doing mm. nothing, um, and both the EU and and the US, towing the US line, basically, which is to say that Israel is allowed to do what it likes. Yeah. That's that's the tragedy yeah, of where we're at. I mean, at that's it. I don't know if you moment. can expect much response uh, to Israel from uh, the rest of the world, given that uh, the rest of us have been facilitating this in effect. Betty, I'm out of time. I have to leave there. Thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Thank you very much, Michael. Much appreciated. Thank you. Betty Purcell, Bye. former RTE producer and spokesperson for the Ireland-Palestine Solidarity Campaign. Thanks indeed uh, to Marco O'Driscoll, who researched uh, today. Chris Murray was in the control tower. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie